Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and it's my pleasure this morning to introduce Ken Oak to you. Most of you know Ken. One of the silver linings of the pandemic is we've been able to have some of the missionaries we support around the world join us more often than we normally would, and Ken has been one of those. He has preached a few times over the last year, and most recently in our sermon series on the I Am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and he's back this morning to do a one-off. So if you don't know Ken, I can tell you that he serves as a vice president with Avant Ministries. He oversees their operations in Europe and Latin America. They are a church planting and mission organization. He's been with Avant since 1994, first in Poland and more recently in Spain, uh, where he lives with his wife Doreen in Malaga in the south of Spain. He has a master's in intercultural studies from Columbia International University, and uh, Ken and Doreen have lots of ties to Guelph. Uh, Ken's brother and sister and their families live here, and his parents live in Mount Forest. So it's great to have you back, Ken, and I'm going to pray for you now. Dear God, uh, we pray for Ken and Doreen. Uh, I ask that through the ministry of your word this morning, through the message that Ken will bring, that you would encourage us. Uh, Lord, we aren't in the same room, and we can't see each other that way, but we know that it's by your Holy Spirit that you really draw us together, that you really create these bonds between us and lead us deeper into your love and grace. So I pray that that uh, would take place this morning. And I pray uh, this week uh, we have Ken and Doreen as our mission prayer request for court right and so i pray uh, according to that request that you would uh, bless them in their ministry and especially in the media center um, in malaga uh, where there is a really valuable ministry of creating evangelistic materials for use in north Ar north africa in arabic uh, so i pray that you would um, multiply uh, the fruit from that ministry and i play al pray also for uh, the avant team both in europe and around the world their team um, has been hit by a number of setbacks illness and and uh, family issues so I, I pray that you would bear with them that your grace would be sufficient for them uh, through the challenges they're facing and all of us are facing so we pray for ken and doreen and we ask you through ken's preaching this morning to encourage us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning to the Courtright family. It's nice to be able to virtually be with you again. Um, with everything that's been going on this year, I've enjoyed um, being able to participate in the life at Courtright a little bit more, even though we're based here in southern Spain. So we're going to dig into um, a passage of scripture that I've been thinking about for quite some time. So you know, when, when my kids were younger, uh, they watched the Disney Channel all the time, watched the cartoons, and I wasn't really interested in many of the shows. But there was one show, or there was one segment of one show that would always get me, and I couldn't stop watching it. So if you have kids that are the age of my kids, you might remember this show called Art Attack. So Art Attack had this segment called Big Art. And if you've seen it, you'll remember how it works. There's no dialogue. There's just the artist creating this huge piece of art, like often as big as, say, the auditorium of the, ch of the, uh, the church at Courtright. 
So I found one of those segments on YouTube this week and totally got sucked in again. Right, so the artist starts off by folding a bunch of blue and green bed sheets into a certain shape, and then he lays them out on the ground. And then he took a couple sleeping bags and folded them into a certain shape and laid them on top of the bed sheets. And then he grabbed a bunch of yellow mop heads and stuck the mop heads into the mix. And he's always using stuff that's just you can find in a hardware store or around your house. And then you begin to see that something's taking shape. Right? You realize this is not just random colors. It's going to look like something in the end. And that's what sucks me in every time. Something's taking shape. I don't know what it is. Every once in a while, you get a quick glimpse of it, like an aerial shot where you can see the whole picture. And then it goes back to the artist's perspective, laying things down on the ground. And so he pulls out some red scrub brushes and seven or eight toilet bowl brushes and some bottles of beads. And the more he adds, the more things take shape and you finally get to the point where you go, uh-huh, he's making a peacock. And here's the thing though, even when you know it's going to be a peacock, you keep watching because having seen these segments before, you know that what he's doing is always going to be more than what you think it's going to be. You follow me with that? Um, he's going to add details to make it even more amazing than what you imagine, even when you figure out what it's going to be. So he's added some dried corn cobs and shiny blue garden hose and wooden rattan fencing for the feet of the peacock. And the camera pulls back and you get this overhead shot of this incredible, multi-dimensional, brilliantly colored peacock. And if you have the autoplay function working on YouTube, the next video starts big art and art attack and it immediately sucks you in again. You have no idea how hard it is to prepare a sermon when Disney's Art Attack videos keep popping up on YouTube. So there is a point to what I'm saying, because as you watch the artist, um, it's interesting to watch the details of what he's doing. But what keeps you watching is the knowledge that what he's doing is always going to amount to more than what you can imagine. And in the story that we're going to look at today, that theme keeps popping up. What, what God is doing is always bigger than what you think it is. For some Christians, though, I think their understanding and vision of what God is doing, it just stops expanding at some point. And rather than continually being amazed as their understanding and experience of what God is doing grows and grows and grows, they get stuck, right? I think some people get stuck at the very most basic level, which is God will forgive me. I get a ticket to heaven. That's what Christianity is, and that's what God has done, and that's what God is doing. Some move beyond that. I think most move beyond that. And they recognize there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? They understand that God isn't happy with you today because you're in church and very disappointed and angry with you tomorrow when you fall into sin. No matter what your state is, there's no condemnation. And that's and a big expansion from just a ticket to heaven. It affects how I live my life. But some people get stuck there. They never get to the point where they really understand God's grace for them is so abundant that he, it says in Ephesians, he lavishes it on us. And it means there's more grace than you could ever need. That's a pretty significant step in understanding the bigness of what God has done. But it can go beyond that too. It just keeps getting bigger. 
right? God says, and through the New Testament, it says, God shares his glory with us. Second Peter says that we participate in the divine character. So, and you can get stuck, I think, at any point of this experience as you're growing and understanding who God is. Um, I think that probably the biggest level that I don't fully understand is in Ephesians chapter 3, um, where it says that we should be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God, grasping how wide and high and deep and long his love is for us. And it seems to be implying that there's an ever-deepening experience of being filled to the measure of the fullness of God that we, don't, we won't fully understand it until this life is over, right? We were meant to be in this joyful process of being amazed at who God is and what he's doing. And no matter where we are in the process, understand that God is always doing something bigger than what you're experiencing thinking right now. So imagine what you miss out at, miss out on rather, if you get stuck at some stage in the process. And I'm gonna suggest cautiously that if your life is not characterized by joy, it could be because you're stuck somewhere along that path, right? And I say it cautiously because there are many things that could steal our joy. But if you're not experiencing the ever deepening amazement and, and experience of who God is and what he's doing, that can steal your joy, um, right? You think you fully grasp what he's doing and rather than approaching God in, in belief that what he's doing is bigger and deeper than what you think it is, you get stuck in a place. So I did a series in our church um, here in Spain called People Who Met Jesus. And this uh, study kind of comes out of that. And this is not like the story of like Nicodemus meeting Jesus or the woman at the well meeting Jesus. Because we're going to look at the, the story of Jesus meeting up with Moses and Elijah. And so I have to be clear with this. I don't know everybody's Bible knowledge and the timeline of the Bible is not the same. So let, let me just point out that when Jesus walked the earth, Moses had been long dead, centuries before he died. Elijah had lived something like nine centuries before the time of Christ, right? Their time on earth had expired, yet they show up in the Gospels. So I want to look into this story and see the theme that emerges in a number of different ways. And the theme that I've been talking about is what God is doing is always bigger than what you think it is. So this is Luke chapter 9. We'll start in verse 28. It says, About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So, one of the questions that always comes out of this story is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah, right? They'd never seen pictures of them. They'd never met them. Um, we used to live in a small town um, in southern Spain, just north of Malaga, and some of the ladies in the town were saying that they were saying Jesus, they were seeing Jesus walking through the olive trees, and he kept doing this at night. And I asked them, how do you know it's Jesus? And they said, well, it looks just like his paintings. 
I'll let you think about that for a little bit. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They don't have paintings of Moses and Elijah. Well, it's because if you look at the text, it says they spoke about his departure. And in the original language, that, that it's very clear that they were having an ongoing conversation. They didn't just appear off in the distance in a fog. They were having a, an extended conversation about what Jesus was about to do. And it was long enough that the disciples who had fallen asleep while, while praying woke up. And so Jesus addressing these two men and he's calling them by name. That's how they know who it is. So it goes on, verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Now, first of all, they became awake. Well, I guess so, right? They're looking at Jesus in all of his glory. That's what this verse tells us. And they had known Jesus in all of his humanity, right? They had understood that he was the Messiah. And now, now the human part of Jesus is kind of pulled back and you can see his glory as the God who created the universe. That's what's just been revealed there. And I think that would wake most of us up. And Moses and Elijah are there too, right? And they're shining with God's glory too. Now, the first question I think people ask is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? And then the second question, if you think hard on this story, would be, why Moses and why Elijah? Why not David and Isaiah? Why not Abraham and Solomon? Well, I think it's because Moses wrote the law, and Elijah is like the first in a school of prophets, the first prophet in a school of prophets that spoke to Israel. Um, and those who came after him wrote the prophetic books of the Old Testament. And you see in the New Testament the mention of this. Uh, they always talk about the law and the prophets, right? So the law being Moses, representing Moses, and Elijah as the prophet, right? So Moses inaugurated a new way of dealing with God, right? the law and the sacrificial system. Elijah represents, again, a new way of relating to God where God spoke through the prophets to his people. And Jesus is about to inaugurate an even better way, a new way of relating to God. And here's our big theme, right? Those who received the law were amazed at what God was doing. But what God was doing was always bigger than what we think it is. And so he also sent prophets to directly communicate with his people, which is also pretty amazing. But that doesn't grasp the magnitude of what God was doing. And so Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the next amazing thing that God was going to do through Jesus in Jerusalem. So let me talk about the, the progression here where you have the law, the prophets, and Jesus, right? People get stuck even today at the law, right? The law is Christianity is keep the rules. And I remember the day that our friend uh, Anya, who um, was somebody that we met when we were planting a church in Poland, the day that she understood that God didn't want to relate to us just using a set of rules. Right? We were sitting in our living room and her, her son was about to do his first communion. And she's saying, I'm, I'm trying to answer my son's questions about doing first communion. And he's asking about how we know whether we're saved or not. She said, I don't like my answer, but it's the only one I have, which is be a good person. 
And if you're good enough, God could accept you, but nobody knows. She thought, she thought that the law was given in order for us to follow it, earn points, and earn enough points, and you get into heaven. But that's clearly not why God gave the law. In, in Romans 3, he tells us why he gave the law. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Because no one could keep it, right? Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So in other words, God gave us the law in order to point out to us that we were incapable of keeping the law, right? The law is there like a measuring stick to make it clear to everyone that nobody measures up. None of us are acceptable to God. So back to Anya's story, I had her read those verses out loud. And afterwards, she literally couldn't speak. She kept starting her sentences and then stopping and thinking. And she'd start her sentence again, then she'd stop and think. Like this was completely mind-blowing for her. And it's such an important thing to grasp. Right? Jesus makes this crystal clear in the Sermon on the Mount, back in, in Matthew 5. Right? If you know those verses, you remember that Jesus has a series of statements that follow a pattern. He says, you've heard it said, and then he says something that's written in the law. And he says, but I tell you, which is followed by Jesus taking the law and making it infinitely more difficult to follow, actually impossible to follow, right? He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, even if you just get angry, you might as well have murdered the person. Um, talks about adultery, that you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you even look at someone lustfully, a passing thought, um, for us here in Spain, a stroll on the beach on the Costa del Sol, right? Jesus intentionally makes these rules impossible to follow. Why? So that we would lose all hope in our ability to gain God's favor, favor by following the rules. So that we would be forced um, to look for another solution, and a solution that only God could provide. So it says, back to Romans, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. There it is. There's the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. They were pointing toward what God was going to do in Christ. And this righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified, free from the fear of judgment. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So there's the significance of Moses and Elijah. They're pointing to Jesus. And my friend Anya, for my friend Anya, it was like all of the pieces fell into place for her when she read these verses. She was completely amazed at what God was doing. And as I've said over and over, what God is doing is even bigger than Anya understood at that point in time. But what she understood is amazing. It's just not the end. So go back to Moses, or to Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. They were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Um, so Moses' law pointed to Jesus. The prophets pointed to Jesus. And now the ultimate fulfillment 
of what Moses has pointed to and Elijah the prophet and all of the prophets had pointed to was about to happen. So what, first of all, what else would you be talking about? Um, I think Moses and Elijah, whether they knew what the conversation was going to be, they must be thinking, this is it. Like we've watched God doing things throughout history. And now this big thing is about to happen. And so Peter's response in this context is nonsensical. And Luke even points that out. He says, as the men were leaving, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds in, he did not know what he was saying. Right? Follow the story with me. 1,400 years before Christ, Moses gives the law pointing to Christ. Over 1,000 years before, before Christ, and over a period of six centuries, God uses the prophets to point to Christ and what he would do. So over 14 centuries, God's laying out this plan, and Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem to fulfill the plan, to fulfill God's eternal purposes. And what does Peter stay, say? He says, maybe we should just stay here. So Luke's statement, he did not know what he was saying, must be the understatement of the history of the world. Jesus was about to accomplish the most important event in history up to that point. And Peter says, or we could just stay here. Right? But don't judge Peter too quickly. If you are Peter, James, and John having this incredible experience, seeing Jesus in all of his divine glory, seeing like heroes of your of your faith uh, with Moses and Elijah shining with God's glory would you be looking at your watch saying you know Jesus we should really get back to the other disciples they're probably waiting for us right? for the past 15 years I've been listening off and on to a Bible teacher from Columbus Ohio his name's uh, it's a pastor named Dennis McCallum and I like how he approached this I'll give you the gist of what he said Basically, for those of us who are Christians, we've most likely had points in time where we experience the reality of God in our lives in really powerful ways. Um, maybe not to the extent that Peter, James, and John did in this situation, but God is real to us in a new and different way. And we can probably think back to a few times when that's happened, right? The example that I gave you of our friend Anya is, is a good one. Um, maybe it's that you prayed for someone's healing and they were healed. Uh, my mentor for about 10 years had terminal skill for, he was my mentor for about 10 years and he had terminal skin cancer in 2001. And every time he visits a doctor now, they look at his medical history and say, well, hang on, you're supposed to be dead. And every time he responds, God healed me. There's no medical explanation for why he's still alive. So imagine what it was like for him when the oncologist said, I don't understand, but the cancer is gone, right? The feeling that you get when you come to realize that what God has done, it's like the spiritual buzz and you don't want it to go away. Um, now, those of you who know me would probably say I'm fairly even keeled. I'm no... I don't really have big emotional ups and downs. I'm passionate about things, but passionate in a reserved way, if that makes sense. So 
Now I say that um, as the context for what I'm about to share. Over 20 years ago, living in this little town that I talked about already, um, I was on a rooftop, a rooftop patio praying. And for some reason, something that's never happened to me again, I was simply struck by the greatness of God in a way that I had never been before. Like his complete and utter majesty. And I actually can't put it in words very well, but I would say it was a knowledge of the vastness of God and then the overwhelming sense or maybe the overwhelming certainty that he is in absolute and complete control. And it was a, it was a half an hour in the, my life. It was an intellectual high, an emotional high, a spiritual high, like indescribable. And I wanted the experience to go on forever. And I would say that this knowledge has stayed with me since, but not the emotional charge, right? And here's the big issue that I'm, that I'm aiming at. At times when God gives us really spectacular glimpses of himself, there's a huge temptation in the Christian life to search for another spectacular experience. In fact, you can find churches who have shifted their entire focus into a quest for an ever more intense spiritual experience. Right? Worship is set up to get emotions going. The way that people pray is set up to get your emotions going because you've got to feel something powerful to get the experience and try to make it last. And let me suggest that if we look at Christianity in that way, we're doing the same thing that Peter did. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain and live that experience forever. Um, he thought it was the pinnacle of what God was going to do. He didn't understand that what Jesus was about to do was to fulfill the promises of the law and the prophets to accomplish God's eternal purposes and make a way for us to be radically changed by the Spirit of God. He didn't understand that what God is doing is always bigger than what you think it is, bigger than our current experience of what he's doing, no matter how big that seems. And if Peter had, had gotten his way, there would still be three tents built on a mountain somewhere in the Middle East, where to this day, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah would be there talking. And we would all be stuck in our understanding of what God was doing, and we would have missed out on everything that Christ did. So let me try to wrap up this big thought by looking at Jesus' prayer in John 17. Right? Jesus' prayer in John 17, 20 is on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message. Um, that's us. We're the ones that will believe in him. And what he wants is that all of them may be one. Now, I've, I've heard these verses many times preached as in Jesus is praying for unity in the church. I'm not sure that's what it means completely. So let's, let's look at this. He wants them to be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He says, I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly united so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you loved me. So there are some thick concepts in those verses. Let me pull it apart. It says that all of them may be one. And as I said, this is more than just get along and live in harmony, because the oneness that he describes going forward is way beyond that. 
It's the oneness that's the same as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may know that you sent me. Right? Bonded with God, united with God the Father and the Son, that they may also be in us. That's what that means. And I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one just as we are one. One with God. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly united. Again, perfectly united is not just united with one another getting along. It's united with God um, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them just as you have loved me. So Jesus here is praying that God would give us the glory that the Father had given him, right? Jesus glorified transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, the story that we've been looking at. Um, that's the glory Jesus offers us. So Peter's saying we should all stay here, not understanding that what Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem was going to bring that glory that he saw in Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, not just to this little group of three, but to everyone who would believe. What God is doing is always bigger than what you think it is. And so God doesn't let them stay on the mountain back in, uh, back in Luke now. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice from the cloud came, saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So where do you find yourself in this walk with God, um, where we're supposed to be continually amazed at what he's done and what he's doing? Right. Do, you, do you find yourself stuck at that, I understand I have a ticket to heaven and I'm pretty sure that's what Christianity is all about. That's what God's done. That's what he's doing. Maybe you've reached another level and you really do grasp the hugeness of God's grace. Maybe you've reached another level and you really understand the depth of his love for you. Maybe you've reached this place where you really experientially understand what it means to share in his glory. Right? I'm not sure what I described there are actually steps on a path, like sequential steps. Maybe a better picture is something spiraling and getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Right? A deeper experience of his grace and love and glory and a deeper experience of his grace and love and glory. Um, what comes out over and over in this story of Jesus meeting Moses and Elijah is that deepening spiral of understanding and experience, experiencing what God has done what he's doing. It doesn't have an end point. It just gets deeper and deeper. And so our desire should be to ask God to take us one step deeper than we are today. And those steps aren't always spectacular, um, as in some miraculous external manifestation of God's power. More often than not, it's God's spirit guiding our spirits into a deeper understanding and experience of who he is. And no matter how deep your experience of him is, what he's doing is always bigger than what you think it is.